0: Open Source is sponsored by listeners like you. Pitch in to keep the world's first podcast going strong. Fifteen years and counting. Find us at patreon.com slash radio opensource. And thank you. I'm Christopher Leiden. This is Open Source. The dark cloud we can see and feel overhead and all around us is our target this hour. Is it one cloud or many? Connected how? We're aiming at the war question in the cloud. Americans pay more for our military than any nation in history, but we expect less. Not victories, nor an end of war. George W. Bush proclaimed mission accomplished in Iraq, but we stayed in the war for another decade. President Obama said, we live in an age without surrender ceremonies. Mary Dujak at Emory University in Atlanta gets our conversation started. She is eminent among historians of war and death in American experience. Her particular study nowadays is the persistence of American wars and their disengagement from popular feeling. Yale legal scholar Samuel Moyne will join us with a question both historical and practical. Have almost two centuries of rulemaking and regulation of warfare had the perverse effect of keeping war alive? Has the modern world been trying to prettify war when we should have abolished it by now? Mary Dujak, it's your question about 2022. Do we call this frame of our lives wartime or peacetime?
1: I would say that the United States has been at war for decades. The United States is in ongoing war. When our country is involved in sending American troops into battle zones, to kill and be killed, then that's war. And so if we demarcate our temporal state based on whether or not there's American military conflict ongoing, then yes, it's wartime, and it's been wartime for a very long time, from before 9-11. Starting when? The last declaration of war was in World War II. There have been authorizations for the use of military force, perhaps most famously the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution in Vietnam, you know, and then post 9/11 authorizations which seem to go on and on and on. But even when there's declarations or authorizations, there's rarely a tidy way of bringing those to a close. And both the military action and the legal structure of war Essentially run on a different timeline than the cultural experience at home And that's enabled by the fact that our wars happen somewhere else the civilians at risk are other countries civilians and Paying attention to war is something that's optional for Americans Mm. and most Americans would rather think about something else
0: Mary Dujak in your book war time you write the Iraq war turned a corner in American experience President Bush II initiated the war in Iraq as a kind of crusade, but then the passion wilted. As war went on, Americans lapsed into a new kind of peacetime. It is not a time without war, but instead a time in which war does not bother everyday Americans.
1: Well, that's the situation that we have been in. The American people don't take an interest in wars like it's somebody else's movie. And American civilians don't feel themselves to be personally affected or to have anything personally at stake. And what that enables is essentially the executive branch to prosecute war in a way that's completely disconnected from the will of the people.
0: You resurrect for me the great World War II reporter Ernie Pyle. He took it as his job to be with the GIs and to report what they were going through. He said, for example, of War Dead in Europe, he said, You didn't see him lying so grotesque and pasty beside the gravel road in France, but those on the battlefield saw him by the multiple thousands. That's the difference. We don't see that anymore, and we're missing something.
1: Yes, the column that you quoted was the last column that he wrote, and it was found on his body after his death. Mm. Pyle at that point, he was questioning the war. He was deeply concerned about the fact that American soldiers and reporters and support personnel were in the muck and the blood and the death, and the American people simply had no connection or understanding with what was happening.
0: And that was World War II, a great middle-class mobilization of the most able young men in the country.
1: Yes, we think of World War II as a classic wartime.
0: Franklin Roosevelt labored to get public engagement in a war that actually people didn't support before Pearl Harbor, and he worked hard at it.
1: The thing that's interesting is, even in World War II, There was a problem of how is a president who needs this broad-based mobilization going to keep the distracted American public interested in the war? And so in 1943, concerned that the Americans were getting complacent, he basically eased up censorship rules and called for more graphic images to be shown to the American public. And what resulted from that was just these really um, tragic images of dead American soldiers, their bodies. Mm. And the first picture was in Life Magazine, these beautiful bodies lying peacefully in the sand. Mm. The image of war was sort of curated and prepared for viewing. It's sort of like the way a funeral director prepares a body for viewing by the public, by the family, so that you don't show what killed the person.
0: May I say, Mary, the purpose of those images in World War II were almost entirely opposite, and it happened before the war. Franklin Roosevelt labored to get public engagement in a war that actually people didn't support before Pearl Harbor, and he worked hard at it. Today, it seems we are discouraged from knowing. What is going on at all i think of the gulf war and those laser guided bombs that went down chimneys in baghdad in iraq and we looked at them and gasped holy mackerel what we can do but there was nobody in the picture
1: that's right in world war ii fdr needed deep domestic mobilization he needed that for a number of reasons
0: he stretched the truth to get it too
1: absolutely he needed the soldiers my dad for example He needed the ground troops, so he needed people to show up for the draft, but he also needed people to work in the factories, and he needed them to comply with wartime uh, restrictions without complaint. So he needed the public to support him. Now, once we get to the Gulf War, war looks like a movie with General Schwarzkopf talking about machines and not about heroic soldiers, right? And so technology was making war more clean. All of these changes over time have served to enhance presidential unilateralism.
0: It's a question you raise in your books, too. Are we in a trap? Are we unable anymore even to think about what we're doing, much less stop it? You're reminding me of Drew Gilpin Faust's book on the civil war in this country titled Republic of Suffering. Everybody felt the pain almost every day of that war. We're in now a a kind of republic of distraction. Is that fair?
1: Yes. As Faust writes, civilians couldn't escape the experience of war. On Antietam, I actually went and walked Mm. the battlefield. One of the things that you see from the stories at Antietam is it's not just the stories of all those soldier deaths, but it's also the fact that civilians lived on a terrain that was still blood-soaked. And when they tilled the soil bones and the detritus of war turned up. And so that was the experience of war when it was present. And what's happened over time is really we have lost this deep connection with war. This began not with the end of the draft, but when wars became foreign.
0: Speak of President Biden leaving Afghanistan, a fascinating moment that you write about, an agonizing withdrawal. But he said, in effect, cheer up, the U.S. could still have over-the-horizon capacity to hit enemies if we had to, meaning missiles and drones, precision-guided from great distances. What you heard in that phrase, over-the-horizon, was magical American thinking out of The Wizard of Oz. Almost exactly. Pointedly, it was Judy Garland's song, Over the Rainbow, about a faraway place where there isn't any trouble, a paradise where bluebirds flew and dreams came true.
1: When Biden said, over the horizon, what that said to me was that he was reassuring the American people, don't worry, we'll still have conflict, but it won't bother you. It'll be far away, you'll be protected, we'll take care of it, it doesn't need to trouble you. Now, what does that do? It enhances the president's ability to do what the president wants to, unilateral presidential war power, without having deep political engagement. It tells the American people, no, you don't have to vote about this when you go to cast your ballot. It's not a big deal. We're handling it. Let me just say, when American forces go to war, as sometimes they must, they are using force and they are sometimes killing people in our name, in my name, in your name. And how is it that the American people can tolerate killing in our name without paying any attention to it.
0: Mary Dujak, I'm wondering what all this modern wartime theory and practice is doing to our heads, our balance, even our sanity. When wartime means, literally, an extraordinary emergency, an exceptional time in our lives, and at the same time it stands for a constant. In contemporary life. I mean, there's a contradiction here that could drive us nuts. What is the time in a war on terror, which has never again been declared by Congress, and it may never end?
1: Right. Some people don't like the phrase forever war, but that's what it is. It's war that has no seeming end point. The war on terror is a way of describing our era of forever wars. And terrorism has been around, presumably, all of human history. And so if you've got war on a tactic, as opposed to a country or a people in a geographic location, then you're setting it up as a war that has no boundaries to it and has no time horizon. So the whole concept of a war on terror is just at war, for want of a better word, with the traditional thinking about war times as being bound in time, and it's a recipe for war without end.
0: Mary Dujek, we have so admired your writing, the book, War Time. Thank you so much, and keep doing it.
1: Thank you so much. Really wonderful to talk with you.
0: Coming up, how the fighting of wars got more rule-bound and regulated, how going to war got less so. This is Open Source. Our guest, Samuel Moyne, has written a humbling history of the effort, maybe the pretense, of cleaning up the war enterprise. His book, under intense discussion, is Humane, How the United States Abandoned Peace and Reinvented War. The touchstone of your argument, Sam Moyne, is the epic novel War and Peace. The all-time Russian genius who wrote it, Leo Tolstoy, is your abolitionist hero. Tolstoy himself had been in the amputation room for Russian soldiers in the siege of Sebastopol, 1854. Tolstoy was 26, seeing ghastly sights that he said would render your soul. He saw an angel of death hovering unceasingly and it affected him all his life, very specifically in War and Peace. Please tell us that story.
2: I looked back for the origin of a mistake And a reasonable place to start was the 1860s when the Swiss called together the European states of that time and asked if they could at least agree to let do-gooders, what becomes the Red Cross, take care of wounded soldiers on the battlefield. That Mm -hmm. was the first Geneva Convention of 1864. And I was amazed to find that in his novel being revised right then, Leo Tolstoy seemed to at least have his famous character, Prince Andrew, denounce the first Geneva Convention's goals. He says, well, why would we purify war and distract ourselves from what we know is almost always Mm -hmm. evil, or at least have an open debate about whether it's worth fighting this war given the horror that it's going to be. And he says, look, if we left war cruel, we might fight war less often. And I don't think that's easy to prove. I don't even agree that it's right. But as he evolves and becomes a pacifist, Tolstoy begins to say, look, regardless, when you purify war, you're incurring a risk that you'll perpetuate Mm. it. And it's that lesson that he draws out of War and Peace, really after War and Peace, that I think was a chilling prediction because it's come true in our time when we've made more than just a pretense of humanizing American wars. Our government has taken steps to make it happen. And I think it has played a role in the entrenchment of forever wars.
0: Yeah, he certainly raises a fundamental, unavoidable question. In War and Peace, at the battle with Napoleon at Borodino, Prince Andrei splutters, they talk to us of the rules of war, of mercy to the unfortunate. It's all rubbish. He's decided if there was none of this magnanimity in war, we should go to war only when it was worthwhile going to certain death. He says, get rid of the falsehood and let war be war, the most horrible thing in life.
2: The night before Prince Andrew is wounded, and he doesn't die immediately. Maybe if someone had taken care of him, he would have survived. But he goes to death in the battle the next morning. And in a sense, he's even accepting the risk of his own death, Mm. which happens in saying, look, I would rather just face war unvarnished, without the cosmetics and without the pretense that we can make it humane and run the risk that I will die. And he does. Now, again, it's dramatic, maybe melodramatic. I just want to make clear, I think he was wrong. We can think of a lot of brutal wars that don't end anytime soon, that drag on. And yet there's something essential in Prince Andrew's worry that when we do decide for the highest of reasons to minimize the brutality of war for soldiers and civilians, as we've done lately, we run a risk. And then the question is, how do we keep that risk out in the open? How do we face it, control, and manage it? And I think that's where we failed. And that's where Prince Andrew is so relevant to
0: the war on terror. The lesson is interesting the drive to ameliorate the worst evils that we know, war and slavery near the top of the list, the drive to ameliorate them, in fact, extends them.
2: The slavery case is Tolstoy's own comparison to war. Historians claim that the noble attempt to reduce the cruelty of chattel slavery without challenging property rights in human beings perpetuated those property rights and gave slavery Mm. a new lease on life so it can happen.
0: You think Tolstoy has been proved right. The humanization of modern America's wars has become a part of the syndrome of their perpetuation, not a step beyond them. Flying fast over the 20th century, what in the world did we learn in the worst wars of human history, one and two, also Vietnam, and we'll get to 9-11, but What do you make of the horrors of those wars, bombings and mass killings in the era of the Geneva Conventions?
2: Well, like many prophets, he was far too early. And actually, it wasn't credible to take him seriously because when he wrote, the brutality of war was getting worse, not least through new weaponry. And that trend is the one that continued for the next century. That's why the project that the Swiss founded with the first Geneva Convention didn't attract a big following for a long time. The thing that attracted a big following was the peace movement. And of course, it has major setbacks. And yet, even after World War I and II, the priority of activists and the transatlantic public especially is on some durable peace and of course, all of these wars, first transatlantic wars, World War One and 2 are fought with no holds barred, with no legal limits really on how they're fought. That's in good American tradition because Americans have fought so-called Indian wars without limits for centuries, and yet they've only done so on their continent in the Philippines, in their counterinsurgency at the dawn of the 20th century, Mm -hmm. and then in this series of Pacific wars, the end of World War II in Japan, over Japan, Korea, Vietnam. And then I think something changes. America begins to fight the imperial wars of its European imperial predecessors in ruling the world after 1945, and fights like them brutally. But then Mm -hmm. something changes in and through Vietnam. And that's the story I try to tell of a kind of shift from a tradition of brutality in war and the attempt to keep war from happening, and then the rise of this successor cause after Vietnam, not peace, but humanity in endless war.
0: Sam, what did the Red Cross itself accomplish? I associate its formation in the middle of the 19th century with Florence Nightingale and her works of mercy, and care in the Crimean War. But what did it do?
2: So initially, the Red Cross is this Swiss outfit that is trying to create treaties of interstate cooperation so that war will be less brutal. In the end, it involves a lot of you know do-gooders in different national societies, including famously Clara Barton in our country's early Red Cross who respond to war and later to natural catastrophe. The original mission of the Red Cross still exists today under the stewardship of the so-called International Committee of the Red Cross in Geneva. It's the custodian of the laws of war. It tries to update them. It updates them in 1949, including to place limits on what can be done to civilians. And above all, it updates them most successfully and, in a way, portentously in 1977. Because it's only then that the rules that the Red Cross has sponsored and that states begin to accept say you can't shoot at a civilian. Amazingly late. Hmm. But, of course, we know that aerial bombardment has happened in World War II in Korea and Vietnam, indiscriminate bombardment. And 1977 means that's illegal. And then there's a second rule that says, even if you have to kill civilians collaterally, you can't kill too many. If you're shooting at a legitimate target, a combatant, you can kill civilians, but there's a limit. And that is also revolutionary. It means the kind of thing America did over Japan and the firebombing of all those cities. All of that is impossible. It's illegal because Mm. it puts too many civilians in harm's way or just shoots at civilians. And so that's a revolution, and the Red Cross is deeply involved in making it. The question is, does it purify war and allow its perpetuation?
0: The ironies here are just beyond belief, and we seem at times to be just drowning in moral speculation when the wars go on. And as you say, more brutal than ever, not only the weaponry, the nuclear weapons— Talk about collateral damage, mass killings, and at the same time in Vietnam. I mean, the famous Bilai example of up-close personal machine-gunning innocent peasants without the least restraint. Did anybody get the humane message at all?
2: Not many. You can argue that West Europeans who are giving up their brutal empires as America constructs its global one, they are early adopters of the Swiss program because now, like the Swiss, they have no natives to kill or empires to govern and counterinsurgencies to wage. But it's not very popular. And that's why Tolstoy's prediction doesn't really yet apply because no one's attempting to humanize their wars. I think the big change occurs in the 1960s and 70s -hmm. because the peoples of the world who've borne the brunt of brutal war at American and European hands for centuries, get votes in what the rules of the game are. And actually, they insist on more peace. They say, if there's going to be this constant intervention and war, then at least we ought to keep great powers obeying rules of how they fight. No more me lies. And that is i think the biggest cause of change in america the anti-war movement you know the last gasp of which you see in the vietnam years mm-hmm. collapses after and you get humanitarians who commit not to keeping american wars for happening but try to keep them clean and the military shamed by My Lai, joins them in an interesting way, and says, we can't have a public relations hit of that kind ever again. And I think the die is cast for a more humane form of war, of American war,
0: at that point. But Sam, you've raised a fundamental question. Where did the peace movements go? Peace movements as politically consequential. Did they succumb to the idea of we've got humane wars now, or did they give up?
2: I think it doesn't speak very well of ourselves, but the peace movements thrived across the Atlantic when there were wars in which our citizens had real skin in the game. And that's why I give so much attention to women as the vanguard of the peace movement, because they're complaining about the deaths in intra-European war or transatlantic world wars of their husbands, sons, and brothers. But Pax Americana means that there's a white peace. The wealthy people and powerful publics in the world across the Atlantic are at peace with each other, finally. Hmm. Of course, there's a Cold War dividing Europe, but that's not hot violence, except out in the former post-colonial world. And it doesn't seem as if for a long time there's a big constituency in America, when wars continue in the global South, even when we fight them. The Vietnam War is this you know one counterexample. It's one of the first times when Northern mm-hmm. citizens in our world care about the violence that our states are inflicting abroad. And it collapses for a host of reasons. One is that anti-war movement is associated with a generational rebellion without precedent. But what I emphasize is that Mili occurs, you know, and adds fuel to the fire of this anti-war movement that already exists. And it allows that anti-war movement to gain traction. And of course, the war does end. The difference after Abu Ghraib, which the same reporter, Seymour Hersh, reveals as My is the reverse. That war, the war on terror, involves comparable atrocities, chilling revelations, gory photographs, mm. just like My But that leads Americans to remove atrocity from their war, like a bug from a program, and far from ending— The war is reinvented in cleaner form. I think it's really hard to understand what the conditions are for peace movements, but we should reflect deeply on why we haven't had one of note since Vietnam.
0: You're echoing Mary Dujak's observation that the American military can wage war pretty much anywhere as long as it's far, far away. Vietnam is the great and in many ways beautiful exception. Right.
2: I am a huge admirer of not just Mary, but a slew of interpreters who have looked at all the different reasons why America's warmongering is so hard to disturb. And the distance of wars is one big factor, bigger than the claimed humanization of some of our fighting lately. I agree. But it's also an old factor. Actually, in those predecessor empires, the British, the French, the Dutch, the Portuguese empire, distance helped explain why their publics were so indifferent. But then also consider that for all of these cases, you could wonder, was it really distance or Hmm. that the citizens of these states actually wanted bloodthirsty killing of racialized enemies? I mean, think about the end of World War II. Hiroshima and Nagasaki were distant, but everyone knew about them and welcomed them. And indeed, for generations, thought they were moral and right actions, in part because you know the lives of foreigners just don't count for much, even when you know that your state is killing them. What I wanted to focus on is something narrow and small compared to Mary and all of these others. And I wanted to focus on it because it strikes me as new. Go for it. Never have we had a president stand up in his major speeches on the war, Obama in his Nobel address, in his drones address, and say, the saving grace of our wars now, unlike those of my predecessor, George W. Bush, is that I've made them humane. And that suggests the public is in a new place. And distance mattered before and it still does, but humanity is a new factor.
0: Let's talk about Barack Obama, who got the nomination as a man who deposed the war in Iraq and became, as has been said, the most effectively personal tailored killer, so to speak, that's ever been in office. You quote Jeffrey Goldberg of The Atlantic, saying that Obama had relentlessly questioned the efficacy of force, but became the most successful terrorist hunter in the history of our presidency, one who would hand to his successor a set of tools that an accomplished assassin would envy. I wonder sometimes if Barack Obama himself is aware of that. It's worse than irony, but just incredible contradiction.
2: Well, he's aware of it because he bragged about it. I mean, very famously, at one point, he said, It turns out I'm good at killing.
0: But not always at identifying the people he was intending to kill.
2: No, of, of course not. Although, in fairness, I think to a degree, especially compared to his predecessor, what's remarkable is that Obama, you know, cared about the moralized form of the war he was promising. And he made rules for targeted killings, including when he would sign off on death on his famous Terror Tuesdays that contained violence.
0: Coming up, Barack Obama's discovery of targeted killing and that he was good at it. This is Open Source. Barack Obama made a point, Sam, of saying that the assassinations, the targeted killings in Iraq and the Middle East, all had to be signed off by himself which was to say he was taking responsibility, but he was also assuming permission to do these things. What did that accomplish, do you think, Sam?
2: So Obama came into office, and I think he, as a brilliant man, understood a couple of things. One is that there had been this torture debate and that at least a big segment of the public had found what his predecessor had done unholy. uh, And that suggested to him that the war could not lead to atrocity anymore. He also understood that Bush's popularity had actually tanked because of all the body bags of Americans coming home. And so he did something, I think, extraordinary, chilling, but extraordinary, which was to reinvent the war so that It involved no exposure or minimal exposure of Americans to harm and less open brutality. And so he ramped up the drones program and he actually did something else, which is to expand the global use of special forces, small teams Mm -hmm. of men who visit and kill. And in both cases, he expanded the geography of the war. There had been very few assassinations outside Afghanistan and Iraq under George W. Bush. The Mm -hmm. war on terror was located in those two places. It was Obama who expanded to 13 countries and normalized targeted killings. And he kept it under control in his 2013 rollout of the drone program publicly in an extraordinary speech, Obama explained that he would make sure that it was rule govern killing. It was scary. It would go new places. It might last forever. It wouldn't be brutal. It wouldn't involve harm to Americans, was the real message. Hmm. But the public message, which he also learned to craft from where Bush had gone wrong, was that the war would not Make them feel bad about themselves by giving them the sense that their nation sank to the levels that Abu Ghraib
0: involved. You say he was the anti war candidate who became the endless war president, and that's irony enough, I guess.
2: Well, it's an interesting thing. You know, you've asked where the peace movement has gone, but it seems as if we have a tradition now of anti-war candidates who become endless war presidents because of all of these forces that are perpetuating barack obama recently was the first but trump ran against endless war beat his fellow republicans amazingly really by denouncing the iraq war which everyone thought would lead him to go down in february 2016 but it led him to go up, and then he beat Hillary.
0: Bye-bye, Jeb Bush.
2: That's right. It's fascinating that in February, when Trump denounces the Republican competitors on Iraq, people don't realize how effective that claim is going to be for a few weeks and months. And yet it's also effective, just as Barack Obama's rhetoric on Iraq had been against Hillary in the general election. And then, of course, Biden... Runs against the forever war, as you pointed out. Now, in fairness, he's not just withdrawn from Afghanistan, but has also ramped down drones. But when we get to the bigger picture, has American forever war ended? Not at all. So there's something really interesting that when you run for president, you have to, in our day, have an anti war side. The last three victorious presidents have, and yet in office they behave somewhat differently.
0: In the George W. Bush administration and the war on terror, there was a great flurry, almost endless, of torture memos, so-called, between the Justice Department, the White House, other figures like John Yoo and Jack Goldsmith. What did all that settle about waterboarding and what could be done or what was forbidden at Guantanamo?
2: It said a lot. It needs to be analyzed in detail because there were a couple of big stages in the Bush administration. In the first, one attorney, most famously John Yoo, attempted to exempt America from applying the rules of war in its killing and capture of terrorists. And I would interpret that in a kind of somewhat controversial way as the last gasp of American brutal war. It's an attempt to rehabilitate our old tradition once war has begun to change in a humane direction, once people expect there to be limits. And almost like at the last minute, the early George Bush administration tries to roll back that change, but it becomes enormously unpopular. And other lawyers like Jack Goldsmith in the later Bush administration even before Obama has been elected, shred the torture memos and reimpose the limits. And that matters because from that day on, the war on terror is highly legalized in how it's conducted. Lawyers get to say who lives and who dies and what the rules are. And far from lifting them, lawyers are deeply involved in legalized killing. And of course, Obama just takes that further. So the question is whether we should rely on law when its main function is to routinize ongoing violence as our main tool. Maybe we ought to look for other tools. Maybe we ought to look for other laws, like laws keeping wars from starting in the first place, which of course were never debated under George W. Bush, either within the administration or in the American public.
0: Sam, in this modern history that we've been living through, who are the individuals, liberals who mark the transition between stopping wars and, and regulating them, legalizing them? Who stands out?
2: Well, so there's a long history and a short history. The long history is... The Democrats, by consensus, started most of the wars in the 20th century. World War I, II, Korea, Vietnam, all begun under democratic administrations. But what really matters, I think, is the reinvention of democratic foreign policy after the Vietnam crisis. After the conclusion that a peace candidate like George McGovern could never be allowed to define the party again. And at the hands of people like Richard Holbrook, you got a reinvention of the creed of American militarism among liberals. And then in the 1990s, you get the humanitarian cause, which at the hands of Holbrook disciples like Samantha Power or the New Republic magazine and its main editor, Leon Wieseltier, become reasons to fight American wars. Saving civilians become a pretext for aggression. And this was a fundamental transformation. And it reminds us that we have two warmongering parties Mm. in our country, and we need to reclaim one of them. And it's actually an open debate which one is going to be easier to change. You know, Donald Trump had a big impact on the Republican Party in this regard and really expelled neoconservatives from it. But it's not clear whether the Democrats have seen the error of their ways in the last few decades and have really revisited things like how much the military budget ought to be, how much the United States ought to control and, and really regulate the arms trade. And above all, how often it should be fighting proxy wars, which is an honored liberal tradition at this point. And it's very sad that liberals have really lost any relationship to the ideal of peace.
0: Sam I want to know what you're learning and thinking as we watch the war in Ukraine. It's an utterly brutal war, starting with Putin's unforgivable invasion, but it's been brutal on the ground, face to face. And it can look endless
2: a horrifying thing. And it's very sad that the day before his war began, Putin, in one of his many rants, claimed as extenuation that the West had fought so many illegal wars first, as if two wrongs make a right. And I think we can see how sad it is that our country helped create A permissive environment for illegal wars over decades. And yet, the invasion in its early days kind of surprised me because it led to widespread calls to return attention to the control of war, not how Putin was going to fight it expectably, brutally, but whether he ought to face consequences for Breaking the peace as Adolf Hitler's henchmen had at Nuremberg. And it doesn't seem like that is likely to go anywhere, but it does seem like Putin has helped raise consciousness about the importance of the control of force in the international system like no event really of recent decades.
0: Isn't it really the uncontrol of? these events, the fecklessness, the inability to say, no, we're going to stop this war. We're going to prevent this war.
2: Absolutely. So the coming of the United Nations was a Pax Americana, but it was really the conclusion of a great power war that led to a great power peace with great powers, especially those holding a veto in the Security Council, able to fight whatever wars they want without the rules really applying to them. And That's why it's very salutary that aside from calls to hold Putin account for illegal aggression, not atrocity, not only atrocity, you've seen calls for Security Council reform, for shifting power to the General Assembly of the United Nations. Because we know from our own society that a set of rules that are about controlling the weak and letting the strong off scot-free are intolerable. And yet that's what we have. And the question is, what can be done now that Putin's revealed even further this situation to imagine a more peaceful world, entrench some kind of constraint, so that, as you say, great powers aren't uncontrolled in their use of violence the world over. What's really scary about Ukraine, in my you know humble estimation, is that it may be the prelude to much worse. For Americans, it seems to be about rebooting American preeminence and America's leadership in the world after Trump challenged the premises of post-war security policy. And behind Russia, at best a middling power, is Trump's confrontation, which Biden has continued with Chinese power, which is ascendant and real. And so the permanent war syndrome is very scary because we're not the last great power. And a multipolar world, if not already in existence, is coming very quickly. And what we do will be copied. And so I think we'll regret very soon that restraint never was allowed to get the upper hand and that this permanent war footing is one for which we became the exemplar in a world in which not so much russia but china is going to be far more powerful than it has been lately as of today of course china has one overseas base in djibouti we have 500. china does not have a globe-spanning armed drone program but those are tools that A rich country like it can not just construct and give to allies, but purchase and deploy. And I think the results are likely to be very frightening very soon.
0: If it were up to you, and you are a lawyer, would you be prosecuting Russia and Putin for atrocities or for aggression?
2: I think we should return to the consensus at Nuremberg, which is that aggression is the crime that matters most. Here's why. It's like a gateway drug. Mm-hmm. If you keep it from wide distribution, you keep other things from happening. If you stop aggression, you stop atrocity in many cases. But the reverse isn't true. And the whole problem with the humanization of war is that it cleans up potentially aggressive wars and allows them to continue. But then there's a lot of other reasons to prioritize aggression in the international system, because think of all that's legal once a war has begun, even an aggressive war, the killing of soldiers in any number, the killing of civilians, albeit within limits, the misuse of funds that could have been spent on welfare rather than warfare, and maybe worst of all, all the unanticipated effects of your misbegotten war, In our war on terror, to take that case, more people died, not because Americans or their allies shot at them, but because of the disorder that we caused in toppling governments in places like Iraq and Libya. And that means that an aggressive war is worse, not necessarily for who dies immediately, but for the long-range consequences, Mm. which of course continue.
0: Samoyne, last question. What would your man Tolstoy be saying today about his country, about Ukraine, about our world?
2: You know, Tolstoy was a very, you know, multifaceted writer, and he had an evolution that was head snapping and hard to anticipate, I think, even for for himself. War and peace, if you read it honestly, is is a monument to Russian nationalism. Hard to deny that, at least in self-defense, it's about how the Russian people can arise and, you know, foil the imperial delusions of even a Napoleon.
0: The Russian people and the weather helped, too.
2: That's right. But from the perspective of his later career, when he did become a pacifist, when he did begin to liken war to the animal slaughter he also deplored when he became the world's most famous vegetarian. He would, I think, regret that his country had once again become central to what's in effect a permanent world war. And that was what was going on in the Cold War. And it seems to be where we're heading now. And of course, while Russia isn't the sole unique cause or even the main cause of that militarization of the globe. It is one of the causes. And I think he would be very upset that his wisdom had, you know, so far gone for naught.
0: Sam Moyne, it's a great privilege to talk back and forth about your remarkable book, Humane, endlessly disquieting Endlessly challenging, endlessly interesting, too. Thank you so much for the book and this conversation. Thanks for having me, Chris. Samuel Moyne is the author of Humane, How the United States Abandoned Peace and Reinvented War. Thanks also to Mary Dujak, author of War Time, An Idea, Its History, Its Consequences. You've just heard a new installment of In Search of Monsters, our limited series collaboration with the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. Learn more about them at quincyinst.org or in their online magazine, responsiblestatecraft.org. And at both our site and theirs, look for an additional conversation that I'll be having in Quincy World each week of the series. Our show this week was produced by Mary McGrath and Adam Coleman, with engineering help from the WBUR production team. I'm Christopher Leiden. Join us next time. Join us every time for Open Source. Open Source is a proud member of Hub and Spoke, a collective of smart, independent podcasters, including the inspiring Vermont-based producer Erica Heilman and her Peabody Award-winning show Rumble Strip. Find her series at rumblestripvermont.com. You can browse the whole Hub and Spoke lineup at hubspokeaudio.org.